What are those? Right there. Look at that guy. All right. Maybe you can help me with my, my message. I'm just going to leave you right there. I don't know what there, any significance is to that. That's hilarious. That's a first for me. So several firsts today. It is, it again, it is wonderful uh, to be among you today. Um, it's a joy to be here on the first Sunday of Advent uh, as well. Uh, but I do feel like I have to lay my cards on the table. Uh, I'm a Michigan guy, grew up uh, in this state not too far from here up the road, and I am a University of Michigan football fan. I know, which means I'm super excited today and like preaching at Real Life Community Church is just like icing on the cake of an awesome weekend. Uh, and then on top of that, I know that my Detroit Lions cannot lose today. So it just, it just can't get better than this. Um, but you know, being a Wolverine fan, yesterday was a wonderful thing, right? For, for us, if you're one of them, because all that despair, years of being beat down, years of hearing it from Ohio fans, uh, all the tables turned yesterday. There was a great reversal. And we love the stories of great reversals, right? We love the movie Rudy, throw one out there for the Notre Dame fans. I got nothing, I already told you, I got nothing for the state fans today, I'm sorry, right? I know, I already told my, uh, friend over here. But we love those stories. We love the Hallmark movie where the girl next door marries the prince and moves into the castle. Right? The great, the great reversals, the great change of fortune, the, the going from the bottom to the very top, being destitute to being in the favored place. And this morning from God's word, I want to take us to a place that shows us just that, a great reversal. And we see a great reversal in the life of one woman and how that points to an either, even greater reversal for our entire world and for all of God's people. So if you haven't already, please get to the book of Ruth, this beautiful short story of Ruth in our Bibles. And even among those who, who don't really uh, honor Christ or believe the truth of the Bible, they will say that the book of Ruth is this beautiful short story. I've heard it called uh, an exquisite novella. I have no idea what that means. I just like saying novella. But it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And it is a story of God's grace. It is a story of a great reversal. And I want to just lay out what the, the main idea, we're going to look at the ending of the story, right? I only get one shot to preach the book of Ruth. I'm going to preach the ending. I'm going to preach the climax, the resolution of the book. We're going to have to review the whole book to get there. But this is the main idea I want us to see from Ruth chapter 4, verse 13 to the end of the book. This is, the, this is what I want us to see, that by providing a redeemer for one despairing woman, God graciously demonstrates his commitment to redeem all his people. It's kind of a long one. Let's, let's give it another go. By providing a redeemer for one despairing woman, God graciously demonstrates his commitment to redeem all his people. That's what we're going to see from the book of Ruth 
chapter 4, verse 13 through 22. But to get there, we've got we've to sort of figure out where we are, right? We're sort of like the, the paratrooper who has landed behind enemy lines. Where am I? I've got to get a lay, the lay of the land. How did we get here to the end of chapter 4? And, I, and I'm going to give us a quick review of the book of Ruth. I hope you've read it. If you haven't, read it. You are in for a wonderful treat. If you have, read it again. In the book of Ruth, it's a story, and stories have uh, certain uh, aspects or components, uh, like a setting. And the setting time-wise for uh, the book of Ruth is right there in chapter 1, verse 1. It happened in the days when the judges ruled. And if you remember the days when the judges ruled, and the book of Judges is right there, the book before that, uh, it is a desperate, horrible time. Uh, take all those dystopic movies you've ever seen and sort of mush them into one. That is the book of Judges. It is awful. There, there is sin. There is wickedness. There is hardship. There is violence. Uh, there is all kinds of stuff. And the problem, if you just look over the page, I've got Ruth on the, the one page, and I've got the end of the book of Judges on the other. The last book sorry, the last verse in the book of Judges uh, gives us the problem. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the issue. There's chaos because there's no king to lead God's people as God would lead his people, and so they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And what happens when we human beings do what's right in our own eyes? It is a horrible mess. And that's, what, that's the setting as we get into the book of Ruth. And to make it worse, look at verse 1. It's a time when judges ruled and there's a famine in the land. And not only that, these folks are in Israel, this family that we're going to meet, and they go to Moab. And they sojourn there. Uh, and, and we meet main characters in the book. And then the, the initial characters in the book are this family from Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem, hmm, it's Christmas time. Bethlehem, like, oh, I, I think that has something to do with. I think that's a big deal in the book of the uh, in the Bible. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. I think that's important. Okay, we put that in the back of our mind. But we read about this man Elimelech, Elimelech, whose name means "My God is King," and his wife Naomi, whose name means "pleasant" or "sweet," and their sons uh, Mahlon and Kilion. They go to sojourn in Moab because there's no food in Bethlehem, which just happens to mean the house of bread, this royal city. And they leave it. And you really weren't supposed to leave your uh, family inheritance and, and, the, and the land, God's promised land, but they sojourn. And to make it worse, they sojourn in Moab. Uh, Moab is sort of enemy territory. Uh, but the Moabites are actually distantly related to the Israelites, if you remember. But here's the really horrible part. The Moabites are the descendants of incest between Lot and one of his daughters. In fact, the name Moab means from father. And so just for an Israelite to hear Moab, or hear Moabite, or Moabites, just makes them cringe. This family goes, and they live there, and they sojourn there, and they, you know, they experience horrible tragedy. 
Uh, the patriarch, uh, Elimelech, he dies. Uh, the, the two sons, they die. And they've taken on Moabite wives, which they weren't really supposed to do either, right? They weren't supposed to marry outside of God's people, not for, not for ethnic reasons, but for theological, for people of God type of reasons, which is why Christians are not to marry non-Christians. It's the same principle in the New Testament. But they did, and they die. And now here is this Israelite woman from Bethlehem. She's, she's lost her husband. She's lost her two boys. She's got Moabite daughters-in-law. She's going to go back. She's going to go back to, to Bethlehem. She hears that the barley harvest is going on. She's going to go, and at some point she says the, the, the daughters-in-law are going to go with her. At some point she says, girls, just, just stay. What, what have I to offer you? I can't give you sons to marry. I'm destitute. And if you think about what it was to be a widow at this time in history and in this place, you were absolutely destitute. You had no way of earning a living. You only would have be uh, subject to the charity and the generosity of your family or those around you. And she's lost her husband and her sons. And her daughters are, daughters-in-law are widows as well. So she says, you know what? stay here, stay in Moab. Maybe you can marry. I can't give you any more sons to marry. And one eventually named Orpah says, okay, she'll, she'll stay in Moab. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, absolutely refuses. And we start to see something about Ruth, um, that, that she wants to be not only with Naomi, but she wants to be with Naomi's people, and she wants to be with Naomi's God. We start to understand there's, there's, there looks like there's been a transformation in Ruth. And so they do. They, they, they go on back to Bethlehem, and Ruth gets right to work in chapter 2. There's a change of scenery in chapter 2. Now they're in Bethlehem. Uh, Ruth gets right to work. She's going to help provide for her mother-in-law, Naomi, by gleaning in somebody's field. Somebody who will let her glean in their field. It's, it's harvest time, and there is a way that God has uh, set up to provide for those who are destitute and in need. Part of his uh, people is that they can glean, which means you follow behind the harvesters. And if they drop any pieces of grain or miss anything, you can pick that up, and you may have it, and you may keep it. And that's sort of your, your food stamps. Or they, they were told not to harvest the very corner, the very edges of their field. And that was for the poor of the land uh, to be provided for. And so Ruth is very industrious. She's faithful to her, her um, mother-in-law, Naomi. And she goes and she gleans in the field. And it says in chapter 2, uh, in verse 3, that she just happened to glean in the field of a man named Boaz. And the narrator has already told us that Boaz is a worthy man, which is pretty amazing in the time of judges when everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. There's a worthy man in Israel. His name is Boaz, and he's related to Naomi, which means there is the possibility that he could be their kinsman redeemer. And then we get into these two um, Again, traditions, laws that God has set up among his people for his old covenant people, Israel, during that time. One is the Levite marriage, where if somebody, if a man dies and he doesn't have a male heir to inherit his land, 
then his brother or the next of kin is to, is to marry and produce an heir with his widow. Uh, well, there's no one to do that for Ruth uh, and Naomi, but Boaz is that guy. Boaz could be that guy because he's related to them. There would have been no one for, to do that if they were still in Moab. So you have that, this Leverite marriage, or this, this um, Leverite marriage thing, and then you have the kinsman redeemer. I sort of already melded into that because they kind of come together. But the kinsman redeemer can buy back land. Very important that your family did not lose their land in the old covenant way of doing things in God's people uh, in the nation of Israel. Because the land was your inheritance. It was tied to God's covenant promises for his people. And, and the land had been portioned out to God's people when they entered it with Joshua and all that. And you weren't supposed to let the land uh, go out of your family inheritance. And a way for that not to happen uh, if you didn't have a male heir was for the kinsman redeemer to buy that back. And so we get into this whole uh, situation in chapter 3 where Ruth in, Naomi encourages Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to make her intentions known to Boaz that she would like him to marry her. There's the Leverite marriage part of it. And be the kinsman redeemer. Keep the fa family inheritance in the, in the family. And then chapter 4 begins. Boaz in chapter 3 has committed to doing that. Chapter 4 begins the process where there's this whole a way of doing things at the city gate where the elders are going to be. There's, there, there's one guy in line. He has first right of refusal before Boaz. Uh, he wants to buy the property. He's interested in the property, but he's not interested in Ruth, the Moabite. It's interesting how many times the author says Ruth, the Moabite. Hey, listener, hey, reader, don't forget she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's an outsider who's being brought in. He's not interested in that impinging on his present property, so he, he passes on to Boaz. It's, it's interesting, uh, that guy's name is not mentioned in the story. He's kind of Mr. No-Name because he had an opportunity to marry this very honorable, godly woman, Ruth, and be the Redeemer, who is one of the major characters in this story, and he missed it. He's Mr. No-Name. And so Boaz goes through with the whole redemption process. And he makes the contract. He marries Ruth. And then we get into our text. So let's just go maybe a verse or so before that. Let's go to, let's go to verse um, 11. Are you there? Chapter 4, verse 11. Okay, this, there's no clock in here, which is super dangerous. <laughs> And I left my phone. I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to get my phone. How long does Pastor? He says he preaches like two hours. Is that right? Something close? Okay. Not quite. Okay. Okay. Chapter 4, verse 11. Notice that these are the townspeople sort of gathering around. I'm reading from the English Standard Version today. Then all the people who were at the gate, and the elders said, we are witnesses, witnesses of this, of this contract, but also of this marriage. We are witnesses. And then they speak these words of blessing. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, Boaz, like Rachel and Leah, 
who together built out the house, built up the house of Israel, right? The 12, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. And may you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This was a, an honored house, an honored lineage, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you through this young woman, Ruth. And then here is our text for this morning. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. And may he, may he the child, be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons. He has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap, became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nachshan. Nachshan fathered Salman. Salman fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy word. We thank him for it today. I want to just walk through our text this morning in, in two moves. It, it really breaks down quite simply into two parts. Verses uh, 13 to 17, we read the rest of the story, the climax of the story of the book of Ruth. And then we have this genealogy in verses 18 through 22. So first, let's look at the story, this story, the rest of the story. We see immediately that Boaz is faithful to his promise. He marries Ruth. It's interesting in chapter 2, when Ruth first gleans in his field, he says to his men, who is this young woman? I think there's some foreshadowing by the author, because she's your young woman. She's your wife. She will be, and she becomes that here at this point in the story. He marries her. And the townspeople, townspeople, their prayer is answered. Notice that in verse 12, as, as they're speaking blessing over Boaz and over Ruth, they say at the end of uh, verse 12, may the Lord give you, uh, may the Lord give you an offspring, an, an inheritance through this child, through this, sorry, may the Lord give you by this young woman a, a house, a lineage, that is. God gave, and then it says God gave her conception in verse 13. God gave her conception. I think that's, that's just a sidelight here. That's just a wonderful reminder to us. I think sometimes uh, as prospective parents, a, a husband and a wife will say, we're healthy, we're going to start having kids. It's just natural. It's going to happen. And yet every conception is a gift of God. If you have children, they are gifts from God. If God doesn't decide that for you or, or is waiting on that, 
that's his, his decision as well. It's not our decision ultimately, it's his. Children are a gift from the Lord. God gave her, gave them conception, and she bore a son, an heir. The family name will be perpetuated. And townspeople speak blessing over them. And blessing is actually a prominent theme as you walk through the book of Ruth. But note who they speak blessing to and blessing about. The women say in verse 14, Blessed is the Lord, he has not left you this day, Naomi. You, Naomi. They said this to Naomi without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life. To you. The author has returned uh, to Naomi. If you read through the story, he begins with Naomi as the, as the main character, moves to Ruth and Boaz, but then comes full circle back to Naomi. And if you read the book of Ruth, yes, it's named Ruth. Ruth is a, a commendable character. In this story, she is a godly woman. There's much we can learn from her. There's much we can learn from Boaz. But the story is really written through the eyes of Naomi. That's where the major theme is. And so the townspeople, their, their words of blessing extol God for who this child is going to be to Naomi. He is going to be a redeemer for her. And even when they bless Ruth, they bless her in relationship to her mother-in-law. It's interesting they say that she, that Ruth is worth, remember Naomi has lost two sons, she didn't want Ruth to come back to Bethlehem with her. She thought she was just dead weight. After all, she's a Moabite, and, and she's going to be a fish out of water. People are going to despise her. Naomi didn't want her to come along, yet at the end, the townspeople are blessing God for her and saying that she is worth more to her mother-in-law than seven sons. There, there's this wonderful story of a theme in this book of going from emptiness to fullness. She lost her two sons. She has a daughter-in-law who is more valuable uh, than seven sons. At the beginning of the, of the book in chapter one, Naomi says the Lord's hand has gone out against her. He says that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with her, that, that Yahweh, the Lord God, has brought her back to Bethlehem empty. And she testifies that God's has, hand has gone out against her and that he has brought calamity upon her. That's all in chapter 1. But now here at the end of the story, she went, she was empty, she's now full. There's been this great reversal. She's not left without a redeemer. She has a redeemer. He's going to be a restorer. He's going to be a nurturer, a nourisher. He's going to provide for her, her old age, and Ruth is more valuable than seven sons. Why is God doing that? Why is he focusing our attention on, on Naomi and her movement from, from emptiness to fullness? Well, it's because ultimately he is the main character of the story. We should see God as the main character of the story of Ruth and Naomi. He is, is showing, in a, through his subtle sovereignty in this book, what he is doing for not just their good, but ultimately the good of his people. 
You know, it's interesting how subtle God's sovereignty is in this book. We don't read, well, God sovereignly did this and he sovereignly did that, but we read that Boaz just happened, or that Ruth just happened to uh, walk into Boaz's field. And he just happened to be the kinsman redeemer. And he just happened to be a worthy man. It's almost like a tongue-in-cheek move by the author to say, ha ha, you know what's really going on here. God is sovereign over all of this, and he's moving in the lives of these people the same way he moves and he sovereignly oversees our lives. Even the bad things, right? Even like Joseph in Genesis who can say, you know, my, my brothers meant it for evil what they did against me. But God meant that same stuff for my good. You see that in your life? You often don't see it immediately, not, not, when, not when the meaning to be evil stuff is happening to us. Several years ago, um, I was sort of in transition, been a pastor for about 15 years, and then a church uh, asked me if I'd be the interim preaching pastor for about a year. Well, they kind of did a reassessment, uh, and we're, we're looking for a new pastor as their pastor had moved on to something else. And I thought, this is great. This is God's timing for provision for my family, and I feel called to preach and minister to God's word. This is great. I can do this uh, for about a year, and I don't know if I'll be interested in applying to be the a pastor that they're looking for, but we'll see what happens. And as time went on, I really felt my, my heart being knit together with that congregation as I preached every Sunday and, and shepherded them and got to know them and thought, you know what, God, maybe this is why, why you have me here. Maybe this is where things are leading. I really would love to be the pastor of this church. I can see my family moving to this town, becoming part of this community and serving you here. And so I candidated for the job and I felt like, you know, it's not, I'm a shoo-in, but I think I'm getting good feedback from folks. I think, I think this thing is going to happen. And then I finished second in a two-horse race. <laughs> and they called somebody else who they had been talking to. And at the moment, I just thought, Lord, what is going on here? What is the pur- <laughs> How can this be good? What in the world is the purpose of this? Uh, I don't know what to do. I don't have a job. I'm, I'm working part-time at Menards, which is, you know, great for the discounts on hardware and all. But um, <laughs> other than that, it wasn't what I felt like you called me to do. Now, then in the course of time, I began to talk to word partners and um, was aware of this ministry from way back. But in, in the course of time, the Lord called me to serve in this ministry. And not only am I doing what I sense the Lord has called me to do during this season in terms of working with pastors and churches here in the States and connecting them with churches and and pastors internationally, but that church and that pastor, uh, they host one of the workshops now, like Pastor Rich was a part of. And I teach and train side by side with that pastor. whose name I didn't know but was cursing (laughs) at one time. We serve together side by side. And you know what? I know that guy, and he is a much better pastor than I would have been for that church. And I am doing exactly what God has called me to do. You see, God knows what he's up to. It's hard in the moment. But God knows what he's doing. 
He is the God of great reversals in our lives. And so now we see Naomi holding this child, this promised uh, child. And it's at this point we have, have a big reveal of who this child is, right? Some of you maybe have done the um, gender reveal party uh, for your children or grandchildren. We had one of those for our grandson a few months ago. This is the big reveal here. Um, and, and this is, we're going to find out why this story was told to God's people and why it was written down for them and for us. Who is this child? Look at verse 17. The son that they named Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. This child is going to be the great-grandfather of David, the, the man and the king after God's own heart. And what do the people need so that they won't do what is right in their own eyes? They need a king. They need God's kind of king. They need a man after God's own heart. They need, they need a king who is going is to rule and shepherd them as God would. The king, in fact, by which every successive king is going to be judged. I mean, I don't know if we can really understand uh, the gravity and how the original audience might have heard this. This was just epic. If you can think about, the, about Israelites generations later hearing the book of Ruth for the first time and saying, really? King David's great-grandmother was a, a Moabite? You mean he was almost never born if it wasn't for the faithfulness of a guy named Boaz? You mean he was born in the midst of, of famine and desperation and, and sojourning in a foreign land and death? That, that is amazing. I have a son who is a, a big uh, Tom Brady fan. And I, I think it might be a little bit like if you told, uh, you know, maybe a, a 10-year-old kid, he's 21 now, but if you told a 10-year-old kid that, that Tom Brady, who I think is arguably the greatest quarterback of all time, uh, that, that he was the 199th pick in the 2000 NFL draft. There's, there's, they're picking players for teams. He was number 199, which means that some teams, including my favorite team, had six chances to pick him, and they didn't. That kid would say, what? That's amazing. Why wouldn't he be the first guy taken? This is, a, this is an incredible story of, of God's gracious reversals, reversal in the life of Naomi and those around her. And so now we learn why the story of the book of Ruth is, is bigger than the little town of Bethlehem and much more significant than gleaning or family inheritance or, you know, boy meets girl hallmark ending. And the final verses of the book confirm this for us. My life verse is Aminadab fathered Nashan, Nashan fathered Salman, said no one ever. Because we don't like genealogies in the Bible. They're boring, they're confusing, they contain names that we can't pronounce, 
God forbid you're in a Bible study and somebody asks you to read the genealogy and you fumble over those names. They're awful. Uh, We don't care much for genealogies. They're pretty unspectacular to us. But that's us. In the ancient world, they were hugely significant, especially when it comes to royal genealogies. Because royal genealogies tell us who has the right to be king. And so the author is here highlighting God's faithfulness uh, to his people, to, to all his people, not just Naomi and those in this little town of Bethlehem at this point in Israel's uh, history, but to all his people. You see, our text, this ending of the book of Ruth, it really answers the questions raised in chapter 1 about has God abandoned Naomi? But there's a parallel question. Has God abandoned his people, the nation of Israel? There's chaos. There's the destitution and the evil of of the time of judges when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Has God abandoned his people? No, he has not. God is providing for them a king, and he's providing it through this family and even through a Moabite. And so what happens in the little town of Bethlehem has generational implications. Implications for God's good purposes, his redemptive purposes, well beyond the few years that the book of Ruth covers. Ruth spans... Uh, maybe 15 years in total. Most of it happens in less than a year. And this genealogy spans 640 years. And it it points to God's covenant faithfulness to his sovereign care for his people to accomplish for his glory for all his people. You see, by caring for Naomi along her pathway from empty to full, God powerfully demonstrates his covenant faithfulness for all his people. By providing a redeemer for this one despairing woman, he graciously demonstrates his commitment to redeem all his people. Not just Naomi, not just Bethlehem, but his faithfulness for all of Israel. Through King David, they're going to experience the blessing of Ruth and Boaz's child. And so will we. You see, genealogies are important. And that's why two of the Gospels that begin the New Testament, Matthew and Luke, begin with genealogies. Matthew chapter 1 There's a genealogy that traces the heritage of the Lord Jesus all the way back to this little town of Bethlehem. Listen to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. Does this sound familiar? Ram, the father of Aminadab, 
Aminadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the uh, and Boaz the father of of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. This this is the really big reveal. This is, is the really great reversal. That Ruth is one of the foremothers of Jesus Christ, the King. And here is our connection to Christmas and why I think this is a fitting portion of God's word uh, for us to meditate on on the first day of Advent. As we think about God's people groaning in lowly exile here, as we celebrate the coming again of Emmanuel and remind ourselves of that. God has not left Naomi without a redeemer, nor has he left us without one. There is a redeemer. Jesus Christ is his name. Naomi, her redeemer, the townspeople named him. It's interesting, they named the baby. That wouldn't go down well today. Everybody's thinking about baby names. They named the baby Obed, which means servant. Jesus was the suffering servant who served us by laying down his life as a ransom. By emptying himself, becoming human, taking on flesh to be one of us, going to the cross, in paying the price of our redemption so that we could be set free, that we could go from being empty, dead in our trespasses and sins, to being full, full of eternal life, fully forgiven, full of the Holy Spirit. By providing a redeemer for one despairing woman, God is demonstrating his gloriously his commitment to redeem all his people. Now, we need to respond to that. How should we respond to that this morning? As we close, I want to just point us toward three lines of response uh, for us that I think are especially pertinent during this Advent season. And I think the first one just is to follow the natural path of the text in how we should respond. Look, look how the townspeople respond in verse 14. The women of the town say to Naomi, look, look what they do. Blessed be the Lord. What are they doing? What is that? Blessed be the Lord. That's worship, right? That's praise. That's adoration. And they get very specific. Blessed be the Lord. He's not left you without a redeemer. Praise God for his redeeming work. May that redeemer, may his name be renowned. And so I think the first way we should respond uh, is to lift our voices in praise. Lift your voice regularly. Declare God's praiseworthiness. De- declare his uh, praiseworthiness in this Advent season. I love the, the you know, love all kinds of, of songs, worship songs, new songs, old songs, hymns, spiritual, whatever. I so appreciate Thank you, worship team, for taking on a, a new song this morning. I just threw uh, that one out there to Pastor Rich. Um, 
Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, and you guys uh, did a wonderful job. I appreciate, what I appreciate about that song, what I appreciate about many of our Christmas carols, is they, they give us the, the big theology of the Bible. They trace that big storyline of God's redeeming grace. You know, the, the new and better Adam, what is that talking about? It's talking about how Jesus is the new Adam who's going to do what the, what the first Adam didn't do. Uh, no, let's, no more let sins and sorrows something or thorns infest the ground. Why are thorns in a Christmas carol? Where is that? Where does that come from? Well, if you don't know, start reading in the beginning and you won't have very far to go before you understand why that's in that Christmas carol. There is rich, deep theology that focuses on the Lord Jesus has come. He has put on flesh to be one of us. God is doing what only he could do. What we couldn't do for ourselves, he is doing by sending his own son. That's why we celebrate Christmas anew. That's why we remind ourselves at Advent of the Lord Jesus' coming. And we need to sing about that. It's so good to be gathered, isn't it, as God's people, to sing those themes again, especially as through this whole season when we haven't been able to gather all the time, that we can be together and in worship. What a precious thing. But we can do that corporately together. We can do that individually. And if you know that truth, if you know the great reversal, that you have trusted by God's grace in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, and you know the reality of the word become flesh dwelling among you to take on your sin and bear that. If you have received that through repentance and faith, we, we have the greatest reason to sing. And those themes ought to dominate our songs. And if you don't know that this morning, then, then you are invited to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came at Christmas time, uh, to reverse uh, our sinful state and bring us into relationship with him. So we should lift our voices regularly. Secondly, we should live our lives faithfully. Live your life faithfully. You know, our common everyday actions uh, have implications for eternity. Uh, God calls us to be faithful. I know that uh, when Ruth uh, went out gleaning, uh, she wasn't thinking about God's eternal plans for a king uh, to come through her having a child. Uh, when Boaz was, was faithful and, and generous toward Ruth and Naomi, uh, he wasn't thinking he would be one of the forefathers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was just going to work and doing the next thing that day. I love what Eugene Peterson says in his classic book on Christian discipleship. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I mean, the title pretty much says it, right? A long obedience in the same direction. He writes this, he wrote this. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood to be an attractive sight to, uh, to be made when we have adequate leisure. Friends, so much of the Christian life is just being faithful. 
faithful in the little things, faithful in whatever the Lord has put in front of you today. Uh, I'm getting old. I've been gray for a while, but as I get old, I just, I'm, I, I'm thinking these thoughts about the next generation. I think of my kids who are young adults, and, and I just think if you're a young adult today, there are so many messages out there saying, you got to do great things. You got to do wonderful things. You got to do amazing things. You got to have an Instagram that looks like this. Maybe. But most of life is just being faithful. It's just honoring God in the next thing that's on your list today, the next thing He calls you to. I just think of Christmas, Mary and Joseph. Mary was probably around a 13 year old young lady um, who. You know, she wasn't thinking that she was going to be chosen to be the father of the Lord, to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. She was just faithful. Think about Joseph. He didn't know what his role was going to be be playing in redemptive history, but he was just faithful. We're called to be faithful. Finally, look for God's activity. Uh, Lift your voice regularly. Live your life faithfully. Look for God's activity. Look for, identify God's faithful activity, his gestures along the way of your life. I mentioned uh, the story from my life about that, that whole pastor situation that I really wanted, but the Lord was up to something different. What are those, what are those moments in your life? It's still Thanksgiving weekend. You could still go back and, and give thanks and think about how has God been faithful to me? to us as a family, to us as a church family. What, what was he doing along the way? And, and give him praise for that. Look for God's activity. You know, uh, does, do we still have time for confession in church? Can I make one more? Conf- can I make a confession? I have to confess that um, I have some pet peeves. I have to confess that there's something that Christians say that really drives me nuts. Okay? People say, Everything happens for a reason. Well, everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that. Not for one second. I don't believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that if God is the sovereign king of the universe, wonderfully, graciously overseeing our lives, then everything happens for a million and a billion reasons. He is working all things for the good of his people, for those who love him and are called to his purposes. It's not just one reason, one thing he's doing. He's doing all kinds of things at the same time. And and the half of them or more, we will not know in this lifetime and probably not in eternity as well. But we know this. We have a good and gracious God, the great reverser, reverser, the one who takes us from empty to full. So look for God's activity. Well, it's Advent season. It's Christmas time. It's the most wonderful time of the year, except when it isn't, right? <laughs> For some of us, it's the most wonderful time of the year. We, we, we put the decorations out. We've been listening to the songs for two weeks. We are into it, and we love it. But for others, it isn't. 
it's a downer. Uh, there's anxiety about shopping. There's hesitation for relationships that are broken. There are all kinds of things going on, and, and meanwhile, all these people are all happy and clapping, singing, rocking around the Christmas tree. Wherever you are on that spectrum today, if, if you're in the most wonderful time of the year mood, if you're, and I wish we could just get past this, I want to encourage you. You're probably going to hear that song a few hundred times. It's the most wonderful time of the year. When you hear that song, I want you to ask yourself a question and then answer it. The question is, why is this the most wonderful time of the year? And answer it from the gospel according to the book of Ruth that this is the most wonderful time of the year because it shows that God is faithful to his promises to redeem a people for himself by sending the Lord Jesus in the flesh to be our redeemer. That's what makes this the most wonderful time of the year. Let's pray. God, we are amazed, we are awed, you are wonderful. It is full of wonder to even think that you would give your only son to redeem broken, rebellious people. We weren't your friends you demonstrated your love for us in this. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Oh God, we worship you. We praise you. We thank you. May our celebrations of Advent quickly take us to the cross. We'll remember your love. In Jesus' name, amen.